0: Hi, this is Derek Carr, I'm the founder and chairman of CSA and the host of the CSA podcast show. And I've got another great episode for you today in my security leader interview series. I've got Danielle Jablanski, OT cybersecurity strategist for Nazomi Networks. Uh, Danielle, if you don't know her, she is a nerd, a self-proclaimed nerd, a researcher, a volunteer, a vagabond, the idea lady, which I love, community builder, big time dog mom, outdoor enthusiast, just like me. Welcome to the show, Danielle.
1: Thank you, Derek, you nailed all of them. Great to be here.
0: All right. Well, uh, I, you know, Danielle, I always have the same sort of the same shtick. And I say that uh, cybersecurity folks are modern day superheroes and all superheroes have a backstory. I'm waiting for one of you to tell me about some sort of transformation in a big vat of caustic chemicals. But in lieu of that, you know, where'd you come from?
1: Well, wow, I actually have not heard that perspective, but here's a question for the future. You can always ask people what their superpower would be. And when people ask me that I always say the ability to speak every single language would be my superpower. I think that would be incredible to go anywhere in the world and just speak any and every language. Um, but my world, I was born and raised in upstate New York. Um, my parents moved to Southern Missouri when I was in high school. And so I went to college there, did grad school in Colorado, did a stint in DC, had my first job in Iowa, spent a couple of years in California and wound up in Texas.
0: Yeah, I, I remember you and I talking about that. You've moved around uh, quite a bit. You've seen a uh, seen a number of places.
1: Yeah, I like to compare uh, as a nerd, so you know you have to have reference points when you're doing a lot of comparison. And so I've been coast to coast and almost everywhere in between.
0: Where, where's your uh, is there a favorite?
1: I really love Texas. I think in terms of being an outdoor enthusiast, it's pretty underrated. Like Big Bend is one of the most fantastic places I've ever been um, in terms of the national parks. Probably only second to Joshua Tree. I really love it there. Um, but wow. that and not paying state income tax, I just, I can't complain, you know?
0: Yeah. 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 And uh, you're, in, you're in the Dallas-Fort Worth area now, is that right? You know you said? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Dallas-Fort yeah. Worth. Okay. Well, let's, let's sort of peel back the onion layers. Uh, if you go, you know, go way back, I always am interested where sort of a number of things intersect with people's lives. And some people, it's all really early. Most people, it's not. It's like one thing early, another thing later. Technology, cybersecurity, industrial control systems, you know, these all converge in what we're, Doing today, what you're doing, and, and obviously what my association's focused on, is there an early interest in technology, or nope, that comes clear?
1: So I'm glad that you set it up this way because I've actually overlooked this part of my journey in other podcast interviews that I've had because they're just structured differently. Um, I've mentioned to you before that my dad was a military uh, person, so he joined the military right before Vietnam. He was about 18. He knew the draft was coming. He didn't have any other economic options. And so he joined, he served in Vietnam, and he did a career in the military and the Air Force 20 years. Um, he left that and met my mom in social services. She worked for social services. Her dad was the commissioner of social services. And then my dad finished night school and got a degree in human resources back when that was um, actually more counseling than what we think of as HR today. And he went on to be a counselor at a supermax prison. So growing up, my parents were very community oriented and Definitely in the throes of kind of societal conflict. Right. A supermax prison and a social worker working in child services. So I grew up seeing my parents just wanting to help others in their day jobs. And I really took that to heart. So when I went to school, I wanted to be a prosecutor. I was told forever that I would make a good lawyer. Um, But when I was in school, I actually ended up studying in Rwanda and I studied genocide while I was there. And that really just broadened my aperture for international relations and brought me into international security, which is actually how I got to cybersecurity. So that origin story was really wanting to help people. And then I fell in love with technology and then found kind of a national security mission that matched my educational background.
0: Mm, I love it. And, you know, it's I have you know been looking at, at some of your stops along your journey. And so that all that jives with things I read. I It uh, will get to some of those. I hadn't really thought about that from a formative perspective you know how that formed you and and, and how you ended up i love that because we get the question all the time how does someone get into this space how does someone progress in this space and i mean the biggest answer is you come from lots of places and you can make it work dive in and yours is yet another sort of background difference um and we've had quite a few you know quite a quite a diverse number of guests uh and so that's really interesting coming from the 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 global and, and looking at some other major societal problems both in your formative years observing it and then uh you know what you're talking about uh in rwanda you've seen a lot of things. And cybersecurity is obviously not the only challenge we face, it's a big one, uh, but it's not the only one we face. And so you have a backdrop of of, uh, a bigger mosaic of those things, that's pretty
1: good. That trip was almost 10 years ago. And so when I did international security, I focused on Middle East geopolitics and learned some Arabic. So I spent some time in that region as well. I have, I've hopped all over, but it really came down to, I decided I wanted to be part of a solution. I just had to pick which problem.
0: Yeah. So let's talk about then where, you know, where this goes from those steps, where does cybersecurity, uh, you know, and national security, I guess, which comes first and how do they, how does that intersect? What's the story there?
1: This is everyone else's favorite part of the story where my favorite part is my parents because I love them dearly. But um, my first job, I was kind of poached out of my grad school where I, I had a couple different jobs for the University of Denver, Joseph Corbell School as a work studies student. Um, I worked in the events office and I worked at the C Center, which is a research center at the university. And so I got to meet a lot of people that came back through or were doing research with some of the heavy hitting professors. So I got to not only meet them as a student, but work with them and engage with them um, to plan conferences, to plan kind of speaker roundtables, panels for um, foreign service officers. Or, you know, I got to meet Madeleine Albright at least twice while I was there. I got to host Condoleez Rice for a groundbreaking event um, and kind of sit with her in the green room and those kinds of things. And so, I got to have that touch point of like those who went before me from Corbel and, and get a good kind of interaction with them. And I was actually poached from there to go work for a nonprofit. And at the time, they were kind of shifting their focus from focusing on miss uh, fissile materials for weapons, um, nuclear weapons, and shifting towards how does all of this emerging, quote unquote, emerging technology impact WMDs specifically nuclear weapons, command and control, and or policy. So when I started there, I was actually tasked with researching five different broad technologies. Blockchain was one. Um, additive manufacturing was one. Cybersecurity was one, and there were a couple of others. And I really just picked up the cybersecurity aspect of international affairs, conflict, you know, jurisdiction issues, borderless, um, kind of all of that that was at the crux. Then you know, even the UN hasn't been able to grapple with. There's no good um governance you know for that on an international scale and so i really kind of fell in love with cybersecurity policy first from that you know larger than life level and start and instead said i'm going to drill in on this and i left the nuclear policy world and chose to pursue cyber
0: that's interesting because we talk about critical infrastructure and then operating technology cybersecurity has clearly companies that you wouldn't call critical infrastructure critical to themselves no yeah. doubt but not mm-hmm. critical to everybody else you, you were talking about the application of cybersecurity to potentially one of the more critical uh, infrastructures that
1: can yeah. exist. Yeah. I control. joke the original OT. Yeah.
0: Yeah. That's one where you want zero mistakes, less than zero mistakes.
1: Yes. <laughs> the margin for error is, yeah, negative four. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Okay. So you make that, you, that leap. Right? You, so you have the exposure of the five different sort of disciplines. Cybersecurity speaks to you and uh and so you go um you go deeper so was that stanley foundation where you were doing the
1: yes yeah so you see the stanley foundation now it's the stanley center for um peace and security and they have three main missions uh one is on climate change one is on nuclear weapons policy and one is on i want to say human trafficking but it's more like human protection okay um and kind of like civil conflict
0: okay what's next for me yeah, after that, what, what, uh, where, where do you go next? So, you, I mean, I'm assuming you're there when you start saying cybersecurity, this this resonates. Yeah. With me.
1: yeah, so the nuclear field from a policy analyst perspective it was really interesting to focus on the modernization plans in Congress and kind of host a lot of convenings with a lot of heavy hitters, even from AI. That was another one of the distinctions um, to talk about all the potential scenarios that you could kind of foresee in terms of how do you, you know, create a cyber incident for the launch of a nuclear weapon or left of launch, right? A supply chain scenario or the, you know, automating the control loop, the human in the loop question of um, early warning and then kind of a response capability for firing a nuclear weapon. We talked a lot about social media and how false alarms and alerts like the situation that happened in Hawaii um, or, you know, the fact that you can track the trajectory of a missile on Twitter faster than a government can corroborate that information in the public lens matters. But for me, the, um, the barrier for confidentiality was still so high, even doing some of this open source research. I was able to learn a ton and have an impact. Um, but I hit that ceiling of, you know, I'm not going to ever be able to be in the know when it comes to the classification metrics. So um, I was also poached again to go to Stanford University and help them with their cyber policy program, which ended up turning into a, an entire center. So I was really involved in philanthropy and academia for my first couple of of career years at Stanford. There's a ton of different, again, perspectives on the cybersecurity question. One is global global governance. One is, you know, market monopoly from social media companies and their level of access to data. Um, Another one was disinformation and elections. Um, But for me, that kind of physical nature, that left of boom, right of boom, cyber conversation was actually kind of missing from some of the work that was going on there. And I found myself almost longing for the mission set that nuclear weapons provided with my cybersecurity background and lens. And so I chose to pivot to energy. So before I became a general OT cybersecurity strategist, I really focused on cybersecurity for the energy industry. I only did that for a year as a consultant, but I drilled in on intrusion detection systems which led me to Nozomi. But the reason I left Stanford was really because I was kind of going out on a ledge and saying, well, I don't really want to be in DC and do policy work yet or for the rest of my life right now. But I think what's missing is this entire conversation broadly as it relates to could you cause some type of physical disruption from a cyber scenario to the energy industry. So that's how I pivoted. God, from- there's
0: so, so many threads I, I'd like to pull here. Uh, if you had to sign, You know, with that, all the lenses, to use your term, that you can look at this problem space with, give a grade. I mean, where where are we on these critical infrastructures and their exposures? You know, there's all these things where there haven't been, you know, there's not that many explosions. And there are all these things, you know, that the detractors saying because something hasn't exploded and a lot of people haven't lost their life or traceability of those things is, you know, is difficult. Uh, Maybe there are some accidents, but who knows what the causality actually was. I always posit that, that we don't always know. But let's say there hasn't been a lot of that that doesn't mean there's not a lot going on reconnaissance and and, and, and information warfare mapping and planning and, and oh. capability design, you know, obviously your view on where are we? Where, where, give us a grade given the, you know, the readiness.
1: Yeah. I kind of joke with people that like any increase from zero is going to be a lot, right? So when I was an analyst, I looked at kind of the market penetration of intrusion detection for industrial control systems and it's pretty small. So just the, amount of data we have to reflect on where we at is limited in comparison to IT right um, I also typically reference is it the cuckoos egg right that that book yep. he slept in his desk to figure out what was going on yeah. and you know asset owners engineers operators even you know the one or five IT or ot experts you might have at a plant or a, or a facility they're not gonna sleep at their desks to figure out you know what kind of reconnaissance is going on in their systems today, right? That's just not their mission. It's not what gets them out of bed in the morning is, you know, understanding the communication links between their their assets and technologies. So I think our scope is limited, but that doesn't mean we can't do anything with it, right? Just in terms of the number of facilities and, and things that we actually monitor to understand the nature of the activity today. It's not much different from a reconnaissance you know, perspective they're learn- people are learning a lot, right? and they're learning what they can do with that knowledge and then you know traversing the different ways you can access unauthorized or not, you know, to use legitimate credentials to do something. But I think what worries policymakers, right, is the cascading impacts and maybe the unintended consequences of things that go boom. And I think what worries technologists is the misunderstandings, the misconfigurations, the wrong applications of resources, right the fear mongering a little bit, right, the hyperbolic headlines and in nuclear that always looked like uh, the scenario for like a terrorist to launch a nuclear weapon. Whereas it, you know, nobody was really evaluating the maybe newer technology advances in the modernization program or things like predictive maintenance solutions that were being embedded in missile silos. That's as far as I'll go on that. But (laughs) there are a lot of, um, you know, really attention grabbing scenarios that I think distract people from the day to day work that needs to be done. And there's a lot of work across every critical infrastructure sector that needs to be done that can be done today with the resources we do have
0: yeah i i i like your thing it, 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 your your original position which is if we're at 0 and we get to 10 you know, we need to celebrate making progress not lament or be sad or or, or be depressed that we're not at 100% one we're never going to arrive there's no such destination but let's make tangible process progress let's make do prioritization There's some low hanging fruit. Don't try to do everything because that's also probably not doable for most organizations or anyone, Uh, but certainly resource constrained organizations, they had better be prioritized and celebrate being not at zero and not at 10% or 20% maturity. Uh, You get, get, make progress. It's a journey. We just got to be all on the journey, but not, not be beating ourselves up or firing CISOs arbitrarily for not being at
1: 100%. Yeah. Not thinking we know everything today to make wholesale decisions about this, you know, every single sector. Yeah. It's just a little bit ludicrous to me. But.
0: I I wonder also something I said. I wonder what your sort of uh, informed you know formed position. I, I've I've posited that we haven't seen more um, you know thunderclap incidents, whatever you want to call them, you know Hollywood incidents, because the some of the threat actors who are very very capable, it's counter to what they would want to do right now. They yeah. they're disincentivized to blow a thing up. They're they're incentivized to take out intellectual property, to see how things work, to do all sorts of. As as passive as possible, as undetected as possible, that is their goal, not not blowing things up.
1: Right. So we we obviously can't police cyberspace everywhere all the time. And so even though from a policy angle there are no quote unquote red lines, there are definitely activities and impacts you can cause in the real world that will facilitate a full out, we will hunt you down type of <laughs> law yeah. enforcement response from any any country, not just the United States. Yeah. Um, and I think so again from, from a policy standpoint, even though it's not written in stone that, that there will be kind of a consequence to that type of action, there will be a consequence to that type of action and I think right. no actor or group wants to trip that wire intentionally or accidentally. Um, we're you know we're more cautious about the accidentally, right? The level of access and the activities that you think could be harmless having an unintended unintended consequences that do trip that wire is what keep you know folks like me up at night um but then i think in terms of the tacit knowledge required to scope some type of physical damage or disruption in these environments i just don't think it's readily available so just because you know that the knowledge required to gain access and to even maybe subvert some of these processes is out there i think we haven't Um, that threshold hasn't been crossed either in terms of tailoring those types of attacks to purposefully, you know, we want to do this, this, and this in that environment. We want to cause this physical change. We want to raise this temperature. We want to change this um, chemical level, but we don't want to do this other thing. This other thing, this other thing, we don't want to kill anybody. We don't want to do, I don't think that the knowledge base for that is widespread enough that anyone thankfully is confidently kind of doing those types of attacks. Um, I don't think that will always be true either. So, actually, just this week, the GhostSec hacktivist example that was out and they targeted some PLCs in Israel in the write up, industrial cyber even put, you know, it seems to us, whoever the researcher was kind of evaluating the activities that this particular hacktivist group got so far as to, you know, take screen grabs of the SCADA and understand that it was a control process but maybe didn't have the tacit knowledge required to say, you know, I know the protocols and I know the logic programming for this exact suite of functionality. So I can do X, Y, and Z. And that's what I mean. In the future, this knowledge base is only growing for better and for worse. And so understanding that exact functionality when they come to that configuration is not an impossible scenario in the future.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That, I, I think when we have any sort of, um, uh, future gazing uh event uh which we've done before i'm gonna have to make sure you're on the panel because i think you've got a, a good uh a different different perspective on all this and and um pretty good well measured I, I i i like the way you phrase something so yeah, there's you know, there's no fear uncertainty and doubt necessary here yeah. it's it's factual progress in certain areas things that are unknown and there's uh you know all kinds of risks some sort of, some are calculable some aren't quite yet it's just that's the state of the union right there's, there's no selling here that's where it is
1: <laughs> And it's, it's almost always a point in time capture so even your experts that have been looking at these systems and know them in and out for the last 10 12 20 years 20 years from now we're gonna have so much more data to influence this conversation yeah. you know it might even be irrelevant where we are today and for better or for worse the kind of boxes we put around what is critical infrastructure what isn't critical infrastructure in the future, I think we're going to be so much more sophisticated in how we analyze what that means and why, you know, space, obviously critical, satellites, obviously critical. They don't get their own sector. They're part of communications. Um, I mentioned prisons earlier. That's what I'm focusing on for my Atlantic Council research. Tons of industrial control systems in prisons, privatized systems, sometimes producing commercial goods, not a critical infrastructure sector. Yeah. You know, interesting. though. So.
0: All right, so let's talk about uh, landing at, uh, well, actually, you know what, um, I guess this is not, it's concurrent, but uh, Atlantic Council.
1: Yeah, yeah, so they had put out that they had an application for non-resident fellows, and I think I was filling mine out, or I had applied. I had actually applied, and they had had, concurrently as well, a list of folks they wanted to reach out to that wouldn't maybe go through the normal application process that they had on their radar for different things, and I happened to be on their radar and also apply. So they gave the position that I applied to, to somebody else, and they had had already had me on their radar to, to bring, to bring into the fold. Um, And so that actually happened December or January of, of last year, or well this year. And then Nozomi, I started in February. So those happened kind of at the exact same time where I was um, leaving consulting just because Nozomi had created a role for me, you know, consulting is a good career. I could have done it for a lot longer. Um, But Nozomi gave me an opportunity. I really couldn't pass up. And so, that happened at the exact same time. And my first year of the fellowship will wrap up um, at the end of this year. And I mentioned a little bit about my research is focusing on prisons, but that's just so that I can bring a bunch of these different sector specific experts to a different problem set that has the same characteristics, but none of them are gonna be experts in. And we're gonna evaluate that. And I'm gonna work on a methodology for prioritizing critical infrastructure in a way that you can actually compare one entity from one sector to another entity from another sector. So that's a little bit of a preview.
0: Yeah. Interesting. I'll be, I'll be, yeah. I'll be interested to see how that works. So just for anybody who's interested in that, what is, is it, a, so it's, are those, year, those are year long non-resident fellowships. And so every year there's a cohort of, of new yeah. fellows. How, how does it actually work?
1: So there's non-resident fellows and there's, I call myself a regular fellow and then there's senior fellows. Okay. Um, and I think Andy's a senior fellow. And there's an application process that, that you go through and um, some, you know, legal, you know, paperwork about being a, you're not, you're not an employee, right? You're not paid or anything like that. But um, you do sign up for delivering, you know, some type of some type of uh, publication or policy work for them. And um, I get to host a workshop. I'm not sure if that's part of everybody's, uh, but yeah, it's a year long yearly renewal type of process.
0: And every year, do you have an idea of, I mean, is it like there's 10 every year or how does it work? So exactly. it a, I think
1: okay. it probably depends on funding just from my own awareness of the thinking okay. community from from past years, but yeah. Okay. Okay. That's that's Not cool. Funding, so you like, don't just... pay, funding to support X amount of fellows because there's this whole staff there that we go back and forth with that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah
0: as yeah. a non I, I instantly sort of got with you. It's like, yeah. you can't handle a whole bunch of volunteers, even though as awesome as they may be, if you don't have some infrastructure to be able to handle all that. Yeah.
1: Absolutely, yeah, and they have a great team. I can't speak highly enough of that team and their willingness to bring in expertise from outside the beltway, to bring in diversity of thought, diversity of character, everything. Um, it's a great group to be a part of. I'm really excited about it.
0: Okay, awesome,
1: awesome. So we touched on that. So.
0: So then, uh, now in Zomi, an OT cybersecurity strategist. Which it's funny, you know, I had read some of your background, but just even listening to sort of how your you you know your your version of how it all sort of came together, it makes sense. You're you're in a good position to do that. Um, multidisciplinary, multi-perspective, uh, and and I find not knocking any of my super uber technical friends. If their whole track was all technical all the time, they, they don't have the big lens. They don't have the number of lenses. Or yep. the, the, the scope of the lenses, you know, and, and so no matter what they might uh, say, it, it often is in the sort of a similar perspective area. But you, you, I would guess, are now bringing quite a few different perspectives to, to any of these things you're looking at.
1: Absolutely. I have a bit of a cyber insurance background, um, a little bit of terrorism work, you know, WMDs, some policy analysis, some global governance. Um, It's an interesting mix. And now, you know, I came from one or two specific sectors, but I also kind of dabbled in healthcare. And so bringing that all together, my number one goal is I always try to have something unique to say, right? Like, what is a perspective I haven't offered before? Um, What is a way to break something down in a way that it hasn't been broken down in before? And none of it has to be, you know, breaking news. But if I can, you know, offer a perspective that hasn't been offered yet, then I feel like I've been successful.
0: Yeah, that's, uh, that's awesome. Uh, I'd like to pick at a few threads all, all anywhere in and along that. I think I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about any, any perspective you have on women in this workforce. Yeah. Um, we, um, you know, we're trying very hard to make sure that our speakers and, you know, our, our the people we're putting forward are diverse. And mm-hmm. um, we know that looking at all of our statistics, and you know, we, we are somewhere around 10% participation in our surveys and, you know, our women. And the rest are men. <laughs> um, uh, well, I, not to go on, there could be I suppose third third categories as people now say. but anything you want to share on that because I think we, we, we're you know I'm curious because CSA wants to play a, maybe a more formal role in in helping not just women but any underserved uh, you know demographic group to make more progress in the space and have them be part of a diverse ecosystem of you know participants. Anything? Have you have you felt any resistance or challenge, or not, or leg up?
1: I can answer this in a couple of ways, and I have in the past. Typically, I talk about, you know, it's it's all about how you interact with people. Um, it's funny that you mentioned that you could see me being a strategist because of my background. I think it's all about your mentors, um, and not how they mentor you. It's actually about the people that you've earned respect from by nature of your contributions to whatever field you're in, not by the title that you have, or your age, or your gender. So I will say that the most impactful mentors for me, male or female, were the people that initially had really nerdy conversations with me about really cool or or big ideas or topics, and immediately treated me as an equal instead of those who sometimes would assume I didn't know enough to be at the table and I would have to earn their respect in a way that wasn't equal across the room so that's happened to me a number of times where you know somebody will comment on my age or comment on something else and then there'll be a bit of back and forth and then all of a sudden I'll contribute something to the conversation and they say oh there's a reason you're here <laughs> whereas other people automatically are like you're already invited to the same table as me. You're already at the same conference. You're already speaking at the same engagement. You're already at the same round table. You're in the room. You don't have to prove that you deserve to be here. And those are the people I clung clung to in my career because we just got to have impactful conversations about the world around us. And there's just so much work to do in so many ways. You can approach so many different topics and, and sectors and, and technologies. and. Um, those were the people that I continue to be friends with today that I was never kind of paired with in a, in a way that was like, this is your new mentor. And I will say the worst mentors I've ever had male or female um, were people that said, this was my path, do it like I did it. And you'll be successful because that's just irrelevant today, right? Nobody's kind of following in other, other people's footsteps if they don't want to. And there's so much chance to your path that you are almost setting somebody up for failure regardless of what your path was if you're just asking them to recreate your chances in life. So that's kind of how I prefer to answer the question. Um, You know, I've definitely had interactions where, you know, things have been said in a way that makes it feel like it's an exclusionary kind of environment. Um, And that's more detrimental to that organization or that environment than it is to me as a person. So that's nice. I will say though, just to be really authentic, you know, I've had conversations with my boss about being so public, as a representative for my company, and being a woman, I have less opportunities to be wrong. Whereas other people can misspeak or kind of speak outside of their expertise, and it's fine. But for mm-hmm. me, I really think, um, you know, the the first time I misspeak or categorize something incorrectly or get a technical detail wrong, I'm more likely to be written off as a quote unquote expert, in my opinion, as a woman.
0: But. Uh, the the threshold um, is is. In, invisibly higher. It's just there, but higher.
1: I would say,
0: yeah. Yeah, Yeah. interesting. Um, anything you would say to, uh, you know, er, people who are at the earlier, women, earlier stage, you know, in their career, any any advice to them? I mean, we know some of our listeners are people making very formative career choices. Um, anything, and it may just be the kind of advice you would give, and you can segue to, I'd give it to anybody, whether it's a male or a female. If there was something specific that you would say to, to women members of our workforce, great, but it doesn't have to be the case.
1: Yeah. I would I would always say, and I've said it before, bet on yourself. A lot of the times I found myself in very upper level conversations with extremely important people. And I realized a couple of years ago that I wasn't motivated by the prestige of being in those circles. I really wanted to have an impact in the world. And so when I pivoted to back to energy, it wasn't because of any like horrible situation at my workplace. It was just because the work I was doing every day didn't fulfill me in a way that I thought, wow, I could do this the rest of my life. So I think betting on yourself in terms of what motivates you and if it is prestige, it, if it is being in that room or having that title or being a part of that company that is prestigious to you, then by all means, you know, follow that completely. But if that's not what works for you, I think you should find what motivates you. And so again, what motivated me was, I really want to have an impact. I really want to have an impact. And when I was in policy, I wasn't seeing those impacts readily enough. So I went into the private sector, but in the future, you know, government is working tirelessly to get ahead of all the threats that we talk about every single day in all of these sectors. And I think that there's a future in which I could make a huge impact in the government. So it really just depends again on on what you're motivated by and um, not being boxed into, you know, here's a career path for you as a Consultant or whatever it is, so your next step has to be this. That never worked well for me. Um, I always kind of bucked those systems, so I don't think they serve people very well.
0: Yeah, that, I think that's that's some good advice there, uh, which is is uh, really, you know, I, it's sort of trite saying follow your bliss is a little a little overused. But the, the, what you were saying is it, similar to that. You know, figure out what's important to you, and yeah. and then don't compromise. You know, you might in a given year or in a given set of months, we all have to do certain things. But in the long run, don't compromise. Get yourself to that place or to those places that that resonate with you and that motivate you. And that, frankly, you have a more fulfill fulfilling professional life that way. And life, I would suggest, too. Right.
1: Yeah. And yeah. and don't be afraid to fail. Right. If something doesn't work out for two years, then, you know, you tried it and it's not for you and you can always kind of pivot the thing I was going to say about you mentioning, you know, the strategist role I just remembered was, I don't know if anyone's mentioned like the Finder test before.
0: Yeah. yeah, I think that even has come up uh, in, in a recent interview that I did, and I'm familiar okay. with it. So, yeah, what, what's your, your uh, okay. nexus with that?
1: Years and years and years ago when I was still in school, so I guess 10, 10 or so years ago, I took it as part of the, the job I had at the university I was at, still in school, and all of my top ones were extremely strategic extremely strategic like almost too strategic like overly analytical and and thorough and, and all of those and all of those perspectives and so i just took it again not too long ago for my own team at nozomi networks and i had a couple of the same in the top but my new top strengths were actually people skills and if you know anything about the private sector the only way to get anything done is not to be a strategic fearless leader it is to have people skills to be able to translate the right things push when you need to push not push when you shouldn't make the right phone calls right maintain relationships ensure trust all of those things so I actually thought it was ironic that as a strategist I have fewer quote-unquote strategy personality traits than I did when I was fully in academia and fully studying you know the path that I wanted to be on so
0: well you know that Right there was, is one of this session, sort of gold nuggets. And every session's had one, but that's a huge one. And I think a lot of people in our space, uh, and again, I'm not picking on a particular you know um, profile of person, but there are some folks whose backgrounds are amazing technical backgrounds promoted now by necessity, new positions, leadership positions, and those leadership management positions call on additional skill sets, which some people yeah. have, and some people clearly don't. Right. Um, and you touched on it. I mean, you, you specifically enumerated a few of them, and it is around, you know, communication and, uh, and, and things aren't one or zero very engineering, like, right? Like well, I'm going to just keep insisting because this is a one, right? Well, maybe, maybe it isn't. And maybe we got to compromise. we got to figure out what compromise is. You know, all those are, and those are skills. Those are things that are practiced. Maybe we have some, some of us have innate quotients of those things as you're pointing out, but then again, you can, we can practice those things. And so I, I love that you brought that up. I think it's it's a quest that any anybody who's aspiring to lead others and, and not even lead as in hierarchical, I'm the CISO and I'm gonna lead yeah, okay. But I'm gonna be uh, I'm gonna help this group that I'm part of be more successful. Yeah, you, know, you can lead even if you're not named the leader and those people rise those people rise up and, and have all sorts of doors open for them.
1: That's pretty much where I've always wanted to be. Um I'm accidentally, you know, more public like facing for the company that I'm in. It was never kind of the goal to be the face of of anything. But I think what was fulfilling for me was like, I want a a regular successful life where I impact a team. And I always, at the end of the day, feel like I can offer a solution or just move the puck a little bit Um, because you can be a really strategic thinker and still not get anything done. And you can be a technical expert and burn out right really quickly and not prioritize in a way that actually meets the motivations you had when you started. And so those are some of the things I learned is like, you know, I could be the most strategic thinker in the world and I could study every aspect of every conflict in the entire world and try to apply that to the policy world, or I could go find what motivates me and apply that thinking to how I act in the world. And back to kind of some of the the mentors I've had, I mean, you've seen people where they hit a certain level of success and they're far less approachable than they once were. And so that's always been on my mind, too. I never want to be so successful that I'm no longer approachable. Like I want people to want to have coffee with me and to tell me happy birthday. And like those things, you you know, there are definitely people you could name today that you knew 10 years ago that you feel like you couldn't even tell them happy birthday because they're so successful and high profile. And again, that just is not really where I want to be in life.
0: (laughs) We might be we might find some of the same people annoying. So yeah, it, it I love that. And um, I'm glad you brought up, you know, mentorship. It's a theme I often ask about just to sort of confirm what role that's played. I mean, the pattern now is it's played a role in almost everybody's everybody's been a guest, which would I would suspect be a lot of people holding a lot of really interesting roles in in our community. It, mentorship has played a role. Some people, yeah, here and there and some people, you know, quite aggressively at various stages of it and they've held forth on that. You brought it up. You know, mm. what What has that role played, being mentor or a mentee or both?
1: Yeah, I've never found paired mentorship to be really useful for me. Th- that's not a negative. It's just I never really got a ton out of those programs where you're paired with a mentor for any reason. Um, I, I mentioned those people that just kind of pick up on a human to human level of, wow, I really like what you have to say. I want to hear more. Those are the mentors I've really carried carried with me, and I think you do have to have a sustained relationship. You can't have a mentor and expect for that mentor to turn your life around in six months somehow, and vice versa, you can't have a mentee and think that talking to them once a year is gonna be a relationship, you know, you have to put some parameters around, scope out your, you know, your mission, and so um, another mentor I've had for a long time, her name's Natasha Bajima, she was at the National Defense University when I was in nuclear policy work, and we did a tabletop exercise of ways in which social media could impact WMDs, not just nuclear, and we talked about not just social media, but the ways that you could maybe subvert technologies like drones to cause public panic, and all these different kind of um, thought exercises and thought experiments. And after the event, she just messaged me and was like, "You were so incredibly brilliant and useful and wonderful to be around," and that just started you know an entire relationship to today i can call her a friend but before that event she was just a colleague and in the middle she was a mentor and so those people that automatically can not be intimidated by what role you have to play but just say you know what i want to hear more of your perspective that's a mentor even if they've never called themselves that if if you find somebody in your career that does that they have no choice they are your mentor um if they treat you with that kind of respect
0: i'm glad you defined it that way it's not there's formal mentorship and there's programs as you referenced, but then there's accidental or never, never even named mentorship. Right. But it is in fact delivering on the promise of such a thing, which is we're in a feedback loop and we're talking and there's like, you know, journey sharing experience, sharing, very powerful, not telling you what to do, not powerful Mm -hmm. experience sharing. Here's what I did. And here's what happened. And here's what I would do differently is extremely powerful. And you're right. That can happen, uh, you know, you know, accidentally and be, be amazing. I also think, and I, I would guess that you're sort of implying implying this, but you could confirm it. But I think what's come true for in almost all these interviews is that everybody says, "Yeah, our 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 community," you know, a little bit of self congratulations, but our community is very open to this. There's a lot of people willing to oh, yeah. give sort of what you just described, and people just have to they have to be bold enough, bold enough to ask. But also, this my suggestion would be organized in their ask, um, you know, uh, thoughtful. Uh, versus just spamming a bunch of people to get their time. I mean, there are some things that won't work. But ultimately, if you're thoughtful and your communications are thoughtful and you ask to interact with people who might be, quote, unquote, they might not you know, give me the time of day, you'll find you'll be surprised how many people will.
1: Yeah, you can never tell off face value who's going to be receptive to that. If I could tell one more story. So my degree director at the University of Denver Corbell School, um, was also an accidental mentor, right? They're a degree director, people ask them for advice all the time. And I remembered from the first class that I took, his name is Louis, Louis Griffith. I was the youngest person in my program and had already had this kind of interaction about being you know, also female and, and um, whatever was said to me. And so he always just treated me completely equal from day one. And at the end of my degree, I went and sat with him and I said, I would love your perspective, like based on just knowing me for two years, of what I should do. Should I go into the intelligence community? Should I go, you know, what should I do? Like, I have no idea. And he said, I think you will be legitimately successful at anything you want to do. And I was like, I just paid thousands of dollars for this degree for you to tell me nothing. I was so pissed. Um, And, you know, fast forward, I got to see him last uh, February. And I said, thank you for that because it adds up with not being boxed in, not following a certain process, not listening to anyone else who said, well, this was my path, you should do it too. He knew just based on knowing me over those two years and treating me equally that you know he couldn't box me and he couldn't tell me exactly what path I had to go out and figure it out. Whereas other people come into a degree program and they, said, they say, this is what I want, how do I get there, help me get there. And there are definitely steps that are prescriptive that will get them there. And that works for a lot of people. Um, but it was just, you know, that person knowing that that wouldn't work for me and that I've always kind of wanted to chart my own course that was really beneficial. And so he also ended up writing a lot of my rec letters, which I'm sure he's written thousands over time. And when he was up for promotion to the next level of professorship, uh, he got to choose, I think less than five students to write his, his reference letter. And I got to write one. So that was great.
0: I love the reciprocity there, you know, yeah. Not, not, yeah. The, not not agreed to, just the natural.
1: And, <laughs> anecdotally, just because we're chatting, um, when he wrote my recommendation for the Stanley Center, he emailed me and said, I did not. Or he did a, a call uh, interview. And he said after the reference call that in the email, he said, quote, unquote, I did not totally destroy you. So when I provided my letter of recommendation years later, I wrote to him in an email. I did not totally destroy <laughs> you. <laughs>
0: Yeah, boomerang, here he comes right back. <laughs>
1: and actually, a, his background is a nuclear weapon, so it's it's just weird how things kind of align for yeah your relationships and your career.
0: Well, I think this is this is a great you know thing to sort of end on as we're drawing close. Um, you know, you're talking about forging your own, taking active you know, pick up the hammer and forge your own journey. Don't don't uh, you, know, for, you know, like you said, there are some other paths, but for many people, that's you know that might resonate with them is just you can fork it. just start putting the pieces together i i let me ask you do you read a lot oh yeah have you always been reading a lot
1: yes yeah
0: yeah well how yeah. much do you consume? So you, you have any idea how much you consume in a week in a year in a day
1: no i have no idea i have stacks of books that don't even fit on my bookshelf let's put it this way my bookshelf is stacked horizontally not vertically yeah
0: yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. i i knew that would be the hallmark of someone doing what you do and the sort of makeup you have you, your consumer of uh, of information that's also a good recommendation. Not everybody is wired to do that, but consume more is probably yeah. a safe thing for almost any of us, right? Consume more than you probably are.
1: Well, especially just within cybersecurity, there's so many different, you know, levels and layers of expertise. I mean, yeah. pen testing versus, um, you know, threat emulation versus all of these different kind of avenues. And actually, my brother just went into cybersecurity. He's going back for a degree. He's a, also a military veteran like my dad. So it's paid for. And he's like, I don't know where to start. I don't know what to do. Do I want to do coding? And I was like, You have to try, you have to try a little bit of everything. And that's what I've done in my career, but also in cybersecurity. I mean, I did I took a Python class and I really liked QA, but I hated writing code. Um, you know, but I like puzzles, so that makes sense, right? Finding the flaws in something was was better for me and and but building it and being responsible for it, I didn't want anything to do with that. And then fast forward, I mean, when you find your strengths and and you're able to then in your career just leverage your strengths 90% of the time then all of that trial and error is so much more worth it than finding yourself maybe in a career where you're unfulfilled because you didn't do the trial and error.
0: Yeah. Let's, let's touch on that before we close out strength finders, people might not be familiar. So the concept there is we all have strengths and weaknesses and one historical inherited philosophy is keep working on those weaknesses, keep working on those weaknesses. A lot of us maybe heard that, grew up with that, whatever. Uh, Whereas the other one is saying there's some stuff you're naturally very, very good at. Focus on those. Make those, you know, make make your life and your professional life sort of revolve around those. And some things that we're really bad at, we may never be be mm-hmm. great at. We spend a lot of time trying.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of the classes I was absolutely horrible at um, was emergency planning and response, and that's because I wasn't good with hypothetical scenarios. And now you could argue I kind of work in emergency planning and response, yeah. but I know the scenarios well enough to know that the hypothetical ones, the the fear and uncertainty and doubt ones, are not as kind of technically prioritized day to day. So I'm more able to work with it. But I was never somebody that was going to focus on, you know, the weaknesses. Um, I always was kind of prompted to focus on strengths. And they say that that means if you do what you love, you'll never work a day in your life. Um, It does lead to some burnout. So people have to be kind of careful. But overall, I mean, you know, if you're not enjoying it, life's too short. So
0: yeah, yeah. Well, now we come to the time when I get to end the show with one of my favorite parts, which is I borrow from a show that I love inside the Actors Studio that ran for decades and decades. I think it may still be running, but the the longtime host James Lipton has passed on. But he borrowed from a French show before that. And so he used something at the end of every show with all these famous actors and actresses for decades, the Pavot questionnaire. Uh, And so I think it's probably been in play for 50 years. And so if you're up for it, I will ask you the, the same 10 questions that have been asked all those years.
1: Okay, I was in theater in middle school too, so let's let's have it.
0: <laughs> what is your favorite word?
1: Oh my gosh, persnickety.
0: What is your least favorite word?
1: Maybe gregarious.
0: What turns you on creatively, spiritually, or emotionally? Being outside, nature. What, what turns you off?
1: Um, pretentious people.
0: What is your favorite curse word? I should not say that on air. <laughs> what sound or noise do you love?
1: Um. My dog's little toenails on our wood floors.
0: What sound or noise do you hate?
1: <sighs> Dishes being put away.
0: What profession other than your own would you like to attempt?
1: Some kind of design work, whether or not engineering design or um, like building design.
0: What profession would you not like to do?
1: Teaching small children.
0: <laughs> if heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates?
1: You definitely read enough books.
0: All right, just finishing up with Danielle Jablanski, the OT cybersecurity strategist at Nozomi, but an all-around amazing person, ICS-obsessed, security-obsessed, national security, international security. Security is a theme in your life. Uh, You are definitely living up to your uh, idea lady moniker. Thank you for coming on the show. Uh, I enjoyed it, and uh, I think our listeners will too.
1: Thank you, Derek. Really happy to be here, and I can't wait to see you next.